Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 is where we are in our study of God's Word together. And by happy coincidence, blessed coincidence, the message that we had in Sunday school lines up exactly with the message that we're going to have in Romans chapter 10, that God has so ordained it in the course of our life together today that we will have a strong emphasis on the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of our salvation. As I've shared with you in the past, I believe that evangelicals, as the name, is identifying a movement that is supposed to be all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that evangelicals, by and large, have lost or are in the process of losing the understanding of what the gospel actually is. I have a deep concern for the evangelical movement that it is in fact not evangelical, but is uh, being overtaken by false gospels. I'm not the only one, of course, who has this concern. Even decades ago, when J.I. Packer was writing his introductory essay to John Owen's work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, what a great title that is. I recommend John Owen for your reading if you're interested in the gospel. But J.I. Packer wrote, One of the most urgent tasks facing evangelical Christendom today is the recovery of the gospel. You don't have to recover something that hasn't been lost. And so J.I. Packer and, and many other Christians have noted the sad trend among those who identify as evangelicals or evangelical churches in misunderstanding the very heart and soul of the biblical message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I could talk more about the current problem, but instead let's just go straight to the solution. Romans chapter 10 in your Bibles. I'd like to read for us Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13, touching up a little bit of what we had last week and then looking forward to what we're going to be diving into today. Follow along in your Bibles as I read out loud for us the Word of God. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Before we get to the outline, let's, let's take a look at some of the the key thoughts that we introduced last week as we were examining verses 5 through 8, where Jesus is described as the one who has descended from heaven. He has come down from heaven. And the one who has ascended from the abyss of death in his resurrection. And 
As we have the Christmas tree on the stage and we have the manger scene here below the cross, a great time of year for us to be reminded of the wonder of the Incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14, I think is probably my favorite verse on the Incarnation, where it is written, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth, grace, has come down from heaven and became a human being. This is a remarkable truth that no mind is able to fully comprehend or understand and no tongue can extol the greatness of this amazing miracle of God. And here we are told that this is what God has done for us. Not something that we need to accomplish. We don't need to climb up to heaven in order to bring down divine truth. But divine truth himself has come down from heaven. I'd like to contrast that biblical thought of God coming down to us with the pagan thought that is the contrary, where Juvenal, who was an early 2nd century Roman poet, would have been living uh, shortly a generation or two after the Apostle Paul wrote Romans, he summarized what was one of the key tenets of the philosophy of his day by saying, from heaven descended the saying, know thyself. The Greeks thought that the heavenly muses of their pagan religion had brought them the philosophical truth that they needed and, and that that was the command, the exhortation to have self-understanding. You can go to our grocery stores and see Self Magazine. And you can hear everyone talking about self-esteem. You can go to psychologists and they'll tell you all about yourself, your history, your background, your experiences, your feelings, all about yourself. And that's what the world is focused on in their worldly wisdom, self-knowledge, understanding of oneself. But that is not the wisdom that has come down from heaven. The wisdom that has come down from heaven is Jesus Christ. Know Christ. That is the wisdom that comes down from heaven. And that's what Romans is all about. Yes, there is some self-knowledge revealed in the book of Romans. We learn about our sin, we learn about our death, we learn about our lost condition. But we only learn about those things in order to understand the person and work of Christ. Christ has come down, the Word became flesh, we have beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. As you look there at Romans chapter 10 once again, I'd like you to focus in on verse 4 as a review of where we have been. The Apostle Paul had introduced this section, this new paragraph that we're in now, by proclaiming the truth that Christ is the end of the law, as it says in the Revised Standard Version, so that everyone who has faith may be justified. Justification by faith. That is going to be our focus in understanding how the good news of Jesus Christ is appropriated by the individual by you and by me. Now, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we find out that Christ is the end of the law so that righteousness comes to those who believe. And I talked last week about how we were going to get to Galatians chapter 3, and we didn't get there. So I'd like you to turn with me now to Galatians chapter 3. This will function as both review from last week and a reintroduction of where Paul is going as we've just read in Romans chapter 10, 
Galatians chapter 3. I'd like you to turn to Galatians 3, and I'm going to start reading in verse 10. You have works righteousness, and you have faith righteousness. There's two ways for us to pursue righteousness. One way is a dead end. The other way leads to eternal life. And so Paul is going to contrast that here in Galatians chapter 3, just as he has been doing in his letter to the Romans. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Follow along as I read it. It says this, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. There's the gospel. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, hanged on a tree to pay the penalty for others, for us. We who were sinners, we who deserved the curse of the law, Christ bore the curse himself as our sacrifice, our substitute. So that, in verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Excellent verses there contrasting the way of works and the way of faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Now, also come down to verses 21 through 26. I also want you to see these verses. Verse 21 says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Faith righteousness versus works righteousness, law righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. He's the goal of the law. The law imprisoned all of us under sin so that we could be justified by faith in Christ and not by our own works of merit. Very important to get that understanding of the gospel. Paul gives this to us here in Romans and in Galatians. Let's come back to Romans chapter 10. With that review in mind, we're ready to look at the outline for today. We're talking about the way to be saved. Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, that is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us. That's why we have the cross at the front of the church and may it always be at the front of our hearts and our minds. Jesus Christ crucified, that's the message. But how does an individual benefit from that message? How do we receive that salvation that God has provided in the cross of Christ? Well, 
That's what we have in verses 8 through 13, which we read moments ago. So our outline is very simple, a two-part outline today. We're going to understand how we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart in verses 8 through 10. And we'll see how this gospel of salvation by faith in Christ is universal. It goes out to everyone, a call to all people, all nations, all tribes to believe and receive Jesus Christ in verses 11 through 13. This is what it means to be evangelical. Let's take a look then at verses 8 through 10 in closer detail. I'll read them again. What does the message of faith, this word of faith, what does it say? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here's the way to be saved. It has to do with your mouth and with your heart. Now, the Apostle Paul, normally when he's explaining the way to be saved, as he does in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? The message was very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Faith, trust, belief, sola fide. That is the way that Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross is appropriated. It's received by the individual. But as we study here in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about confession with the mouth and belief in your heart. So it seems like, well, he's got two things here when he normally just has the one. And this is because in verses 8 through 10, what Paul is doing is he's building off of what he has quoted from Deuteronomy. In quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 to 14, what Paul has done is he has creatively used the words of Moses to put these words into the mouth of the righteousness based on faith. The righteousness based on faith says these things in relationship to Jesus Christ and the message that the apostles are proclaiming. And there you see that in verse 6, it talks about your heart. Don't say in your heart. And you come down to verse 8, and again, the word is in your mouth and in your heart. So that's why Paul, when he explains saving faith, in verses 9 and following, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's paralleling the mouth and the heart that the word of faith was speaking in verse 8 with the message of salvation here in verse 9. You see the parallel? And what does the mouth do? The mouth confesses. The mouth confesses. To confess means to say the same thing. You're repeating what God has said. You're agreeing with God. And so the message of Jesus Christ comes to you and you confess that it's true. You say, I believe this message. You are saying the same thing as God. That confession that comes out of our mouth, it is what results in justification. With the mouth you confess and You got it with salvation. I think I turned it around there. The mouth confessing goes with salvation in verse 10. 
But not only do you have the mouth confessing, but you've got the heart believing. To believe is to put your trust in Jesus Christ, in the message of Christ on the cross, Christ crucified. To believe in him results in justification. So here, justification and salvation are paralleled. There are two ways of describing the same thing. When we ask somebody, have you been saved? What we're asking them is, have you been justified? And what does it mean to be justified? But it means to be declared righteous by God, to be innocent of sin, to be forgiven of your sin, to have received a righteous standing before God. That's justification. And that justification is something that is received, past tense, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ who have confessed that he is indeed Lord. Now, there's more amazing parallels between Deuteronomy 30 and what Paul is explaining here in verses 8, 9, and 10. Notice also, not only does he talk about the mouth and the heart, but he also talks about Jesus Christ being Lord and being raised from the dead. Here is the content of the gospel. What are you confessing? Well, you're confessing that Jesus is Lord. And what is it that you are believing? Well, you are believing that God raised him from the dead. And the parallel here with Deuteronomy is that Jesus is Lord because he has come down from heaven. He has descended from heaven. Who is going to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down? Christ has come down and he is Lord. The lordship of Jesus Christ has to do with his person. That he, before the foundation of the world, existed in glory with God. That he is equal to the Father in power and glory and majesty. And we worship him. We give him the same honor and glory that we give to the Father. He is Lord. The confession Jesus is Lord is identifying the person of Jesus Christ. But not only do we confess that Jesus is Lord, but we believe that God has raised him from the dead. And so this parallels with the abyss. Who's going to go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So you see the connection here between this whole paragraph and why Paul is stating salvation in the terms that he is because it's all flowing out of the words he has taken from Moses in Deuteronomy. And what he has done by focusing on the lordship of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as he's brought together the heart of the gospel, which is the person and work of Christ. Who is Jesus? What did he do? That's what the gospel is all about. If you don't understand Jesus, who he is, and you don't understand what he did in his death and in his resurrection, then you don't understand the gospel. And you can't believe what you don't understand. You can't receive what you have not understood. So the understanding of the gospel is essential. The person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I have with me in the pulpit our church's statement on biblical cooperation and separation. That is, we as a church, who do we cooperate with in ministry? And who are we supposed to separate from and not have spiritual undertakings together with? There's many different religious movements, many different Christian movements, many different organizations, many different ministries. How do we know which ones are out there that we're supposed to be partnering with and working together with and which ones that we're not supposed to be partnering with and having nothing to do with? Well, that's our church statement on biblical cooperation and separation. And the Word of God is what defines this for us. Now, in our statement on biblical separation, it says that there 
must be necessary divisions, recognizing proper divisions, those between Christ and the world and between Christ and apostate Christianity. The New Testament warns us about apostates, those who are false teachers. Almost every book in the New Testament contains warnings, multiple warnings about apostates. And therefore, our statement on separation says, our church, Firth Bible Church, will not engage in any kind of cooperation in a spiritual undertaking together with any religious or spiritual organization which is apostate or non-Christian. An apostate Christian group or a non-Christian group we have no spiritual cooperation with. And so it's kind of important then to understand, well, how do we identify apostate Christianity from genuine Christianity? How do we differentiate between those two? And God has not left us without clear instruction in this matter. And so if you look at our statement on biblical separation, you'll see there are many Bible verses that indicate what is apostate. What is apostate Christianity? And so here are the three marks of apostasy. An apostate Christian organization is one in which any of the following statements are true. It doesn't have to be all three. Any of the three is the mark of an apostate Christian organization. Number one, they deny the person or work of Christ in their official, written, or spoken teachings. If they deny the person or work of Christ, then they are apostate. And we do not cooperate with them in prayer meetings. We don't cooperate with them in missions and evangelism. We don't cooperate with them in Christian camps. We don't work together with those who have a different understanding of the person of Christ or the work of Christ. And that's what Paul has identified here as essential to the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is Lord. And what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord, what Paul and the apostles meant, what Jesus himself meant, is that he is God. He is worthy to be worshipped that he is to be obeyed in all of his commands, that he is the perfect revealer of the Father. Jesus is Lord is identifying Jesus Christ with the Jehovah of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was called the Lord. And when Jesus Christ came and was identified as Lord, what we find out about him is that he is the God of the Old Testament. When people saw God in the Old Testament, they didn't see the Father. No one has ever seen the Father at any time. It is the Son who has revealed Him. And so, in the burning bush, it was Jesus Christ before He was Jesus, when He was the Word of God. He was revealing the Father. When the angel of the Lord came and spoke, when the glory of God filled the tabernacle, when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, what he saw was the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ before he became a human. The pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the glory of God, the word of God, he is Lord. And so any church that denies that teaching about Jesus Christ is an apostate organization. The Latter-day Saints deny the person of Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses deny the person of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches us in 1 John that whoever denies the Son denies the Father. And so these Christians, as they are called, are apostate Christians. 
And we need to recognize that and we need to exhort them to reject their false gospel, their false religion, their false Christ, and to accept the truth. Very important that we're clear on these points. There's a lot of ecumenical feelings going on among the churches that are leading people to want to assume that these non-Christian groups, you could call them apostate Christian groups if, if you want to, these apostate Christian groups are in fact people that we can work together with for spiritual causes and spiritual ends. And that is false. It gives false assurance to those who are enraptured in this, uh, captured in this false teaching. And it prevents us from clearly defining the gospel to the whole world as it gets confused in the minds of those who are looking on. Very important that we follow the biblical instructions on separation and cooperation. And the gospel provides that dividing line if they deny the person or work of Christ. Now we'll talk more about the work of Christ as we get into the second part. Now, Jesus is Lord, and God has raised him from the dead. This relates to what has also been known as the lordship salvation controversy. In the previous generation of preachers, there was a, a great controversy concerning the gospel between those who consider themselves to be a part of the free grace movement and those who consider themselves to be a part of the lordship movement. And the question was, does there need to be evidence of saving faith in a changed life for someone to know that they have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? The free grace gospel movement said, no, you don't need evidence of a changed life in order to have forgiveness of sins. The Lordship Salvation side says, yes, you do need to have evidence of a changed life in order to know that your faith is genuine and real, that you don't have an empty faith. And I'd like to also reframe this discussion. I, I fall on the Lordship side of this debate if you've listened to me preach. But I'd like to reframe this debate, not just in the concept of Lordship, which we see here in our text, that Jesus is Lord, but also the fact that God has raised him from the dead. Because I think in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see this important message as well. That Jesus Christ did not just come and, and die for sins in order to forgive sinners. He did do that. But he also rose from the grave in order to give new life to those sinners so that they don't have to live in the deadness of sins anymore, but now they can live a resurrected, powerful life by the power of Jesus Christ alive in them. You see, it's not just about obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about, have you been born again? Do you have new life? And it's important for us to recognize that when we're teaching the faith righteousness and not the law righteousness, that does not mean that we are teaching that it's unimportant or that we're not supposed to teach Christians to obey God's commandments. Very important that we get this clarification right. In Romans 10, our emphasis last week was we are saved not on the basis of our own meritorious works in living up to God's standards and obeying God's commandments. No one is saved that way, as we just read in Galatians chapter 3. But that does not mean that those who are saved are unconcerned about whether or not they're keeping God's commandments. Paul wrote... Same person who wrote Romans chapter 10, same person who wrote about 
salvation by faith and not by keeping the law in Galatians chapter 3, he wrote this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Keeping the commandments of God, Paul says, that counts for something. That's important. It's not the means of justification. It's not how we are saved, but it is the life that we are saved unto. Whether Gentile converts like us are circumcised or not, Paul says, that counts for nothing. But what does count is keeping the commandments of God. Compare that thought there in 1 Corinthians 7.19 with what Paul also wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He said, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Well, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? But only faith working through love. Faith working through love. Saving faith works. It works through love. And what is the commandment of God? It's to love the Lord your God. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. When faith works through love, that is important. That is saving faith in action. That's resurrection Christianity. That's the new life of the gospel working itself out in our lives with a transformed life. Look at the way John wrote about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him. What? If we keep his commandments. It doesn't say you come to know him by keeping his commandments. It didn't say that. Get the proposition right. His proposition is, by this we know that we have come to know him. The keeping of God's commandments is not the way to know God, which is eternal life. No. The way to come to know him is to believe, to confess. And how do you know if you have believed and confessed? Well, do you keep his commandments? This is the changed life that comes from saving faith. Also, you see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus Christ, his last words before his ascension to his disciples, he sends them out with the Great Commission to make disciples. And part of the Great Commission is to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So if you're in a church that is not teaching you to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded, then you're in a non-Great Commission church. A Great Commission church teaches the disciples to obey all, not whatever is culturally relevant or whatever people want in their time. No, but everything that God has commanded, everything that Jesus Christ has commanded. The commandments of God are important. Don't misunderstand the gospel of grace to say, well, obeying God's commands is no longer important at all. It's very important. It's not the way that you are saved, but it is the life that you are saved unto. All right? So, wanted to make that clarification. Let's get on then to the second part of our outline. The universal call to faith in verses 11 through 13. The call here is not the effectual call. We're talking here about the general call. Previous chapter, we talked about the effectual call. Now, in this chapter, we're focusing on the human side of things, and we're focusing on the general call, the universal call. Everyone is invited to believe and to receive Jesus Christ, to confess with their mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead and thus be saved, not just from the penalty of sin, but saved from the power of sin. Not just saved from hell, but saved from the dominion of sin in our life so that we can now live free in obeying God's commandments with joy from the heart because of God's great salvation. Let's pick it up there again in verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And as we read these verses, notice the universal language. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As we talked about earlier, in the book of Acts, the message of how do you receive the good news of Jesus Christ is very simple. It's not sacramentalism. It's not obey these ordinances. It is one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That one thing is spoken in two ways here in our text, but it's two ways of saying the same thing. The mouth and the heart are working in unison. They're both responding in faith. Now, I want you to also consider with me John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. In fact, let's go back to that. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Paul and John are really on the same wavelength today. We keep going back and forth between them. John chapter 6, we have the miracle of Jesus Christ in feeding the 5,000. And the next day, the crowd comes and finds him on the other side of the sea where he had crossed over, walking on the water. And they, they find him there, and they want a repeat of the feeding of the 5,000. They're like, hey, new day, daily bread, let's have another miracle of feeding this great crowd. And Jesus, he comes to them in verse 26. We'll pick it up there in verse 26. He answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Wow. That's quite a statement that Jesus makes. They're coming, they're, they're traveling, you know, all around to find him. And this looks like a good thing, right? And it's good that people seek after Jesus. But Jesus says, well, I know that you guys aren't seeking me for the right reasons. You're really just happy about the free lunch. And, and you're ready for another free lunch. You know, how many churches are like this? You, know, you can, can pack people out on, on Visitor Sunday with a, a free lunch. And, and people come and, and they like all the free stuff that they get. And they like the music and the entertainment. And All right, I was entertained, I was fed. This is great, let's keep going back. And people aren't actually seeking the truth. What they might be seeking is a friendly community. What they might be seeking is good entertainment. What they might be seeking is a, a therapeutic good feeling about themselves. But Jesus Christ, he knows why people go to church. He knows why you're here in church today. He knows your heart better than you know your own heart. And he looks into the heart of these people and he says, you didn't see the sign. What does he mean by that? He means that they were oblivious to the important thing, the sign pointing to who Jesus Christ is. They were ignoring the truth about who Christ is, but instead they are seeking to fill their bellies. 
And so he tells them in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Work for that food which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So he's redirecting them to the right goal, the right passion. And they have a pretty good response. You know, they they pick up on what he's saying. And so they ask a good question. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? All right, you tell us to seek the food that leads to eternal life. Son of man's going to tell us, what do we do? That we might work the works of God. But notice what Jesus said. He changes from works plural to work singular. It's not many things that you have to do in order to be doing the works of God. But Jesus said there's just one thing. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is very important. There's a lot of Christian churches who are apostate, even though they've got good doctrine about who Jesus Christ is. You look at their catechism, you look at their doctrinal statement, and they say Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, he is Savior and Lord. Like, wow, that sounds great. I mean, how could you get any more Christian than that? But they don't teach that the way to do the work of God is by believing in Jesus. They teach, no, there's lots of things you have to do to be doing the works of God. You've got to keep the sacraments. You've got to confess your sins to the priest. You've got to say the Hail Marys. You've got to do the acts of penance. There's all these things that you have to do throughout your whole life, and maybe when you die, you'll have a short amount of time in purgatory working off the rest of your sins. Faith is the only sacrament. There are not seven sacraments. There are not two sacraments. There is one sacrament. It's faith. And what do I mean by sacrament? Well, what the dictionary says. Rites that were instituted by Jesus that confer sanctifying grace. How does sanctifying grace come to us? One way. One way only. Faith. It's the only sacrament. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, sanctifying grace is not conveyed to you by eating the bread and drinking the cup. You do not get grace by eating the bread and drinking the cup. You get grace by faith. Sanctifying grace comes to you by faith. The message that is symbolized, that is communicated through the bread and the cup, that's where your faith is in Jesus Christ who is represented in the bread and in the cup. And it's only by faith. Everything is by faith. You are justified by faith. You are sanctified by faith. You will be glorified by faith. And what is faith? It's like faith in a medicine. It's like faith in a doctor. It's like faith in a lawyer. You're looking to someone else to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is looking to Jesus Christ to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. You are not a legal expert. You cannot defend yourself in a court of law. You have to depend upon someone else to do that for you. You have faith in your lawyer. You are not a medical doctor. 
You're not able to diagnose your own illness and prescribe your own medicine. You have to go to the doctor to do that. He does that for you. And you're a sinner with a guilty conscience and a guilty soul. And there's nothing that you can do to remedy that situation. You have to go to Jesus Christ, the Savior, to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is looking away from yourself to the person who is able to do what you need to be done. And therefore, faith must be in a good person. If you put your faith in a bad lawyer, you're going to jail. If you put your faith in a bad doctor, and it might be worse. Put your faith in the wrong Savior, and that's the worst of all. Don't put your faith in the Catholic Church. Don't put your faith in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Don't put your faith in any church. Certainly not this one. I'm not going to save you. We're not going to save you. Jesus Christ is going to save you or you're not going to be saved at all. That's why in our statement on biblical separation it says, an apostate Christian organization is one which preaches a different method of receiving the grace of Christ than by faith alone. If they teach that you receive the grace of God by any other means than by faith alone, they are apostate. How do you know that? Well, Galatians chapter 1. Look at Galatians chapter 1 with me. People like to say, well, Timothy, can't you just say what you're for? Why do you have to say what you're against? You can't be for something without being against its opposite. I can't be for my family and at the same time be for cancer in my family. I can't be for America and at the same time be for those who are attacking America. If you're going to be for something, you've got to be against whatever's trying to destroy it. And the Bible tells us, beware, beware, beware. Be on your guard. The false teachers are there. They're here. They're all around. They pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. They distort the grace of God. They never cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. And they're conniving. They're crafty. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the churches that he had helped start in Galatia by the grace of God. And he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. They had a different gospel there in the first decades of the church. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And you can study through the letter to the Galatians and find out what was the accursed gospel that they were accepting. Were they denying that Jesus Christ was the Messiah of Israel? No. Were they denying that he was the Son of God? No. They were orthodox in their teaching on the person of Jesus Christ. The heresy that Paul is writing about here in Galatians is that they were teaching that in order to receive sanctifying grace, you needed to be circumcised and to keep the law. 
So they were teaching a different method of receiving the grace of God other than by faith alone. That's a false gospel. That is apostasy. All right? So let's come back to Romans chapter 10. The general call goes out to everyone, to those who are deceived in the Catholic Church, to those who are deceived in the Eastern Orthodox Church, to those who are deceived in the Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, and to those who are deceived in the kingdom halls around us here in Nebraska, the message of the gospel that we have been entrusted with must go forth to everyone because the Bible says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame and that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And it's the same Lord who is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. And he quotes again from the Old Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's from Joel, as it's also quoted by Peter in his sermon in the book of Acts. Two verses here to wrap things up. Acts chapter 10, verse 43 To him, all the prophets bear witness. God has given us his word. He's made it clear. It's not like God has hidden this truth. But from the beginning, the prophets have been bearing witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This message is not just for the Jewish people. It's not just for God's chosen nation, but it's for all of us, for all nations. And that's Paul's main point here in quoting it and putting his emphasis on the universal call. Because you've got the Jews, you've got the Gentiles, and there was this dividing wall between them that God had instituted, that God had created to separate his people, his holy people, from the unholy nations. But now God has opened up a way for those Israelites who were supposed to be a holy people who were not, and the Gentiles who had no holiness at all, to come and to receive divine righteousness by faith in the Messiah of Israel. That dividing wall being torn down in Jesus Christ creates a unity among people that is impossible by any other means. Also, I want you to consider with me Romans chapter 3, verses 29 and 30. And for time's sake, we'll just look at what I have here on the screen. Where the Apostle Paul had the same argument back at the end of Romans 3 that he's using here in Romans 10. But instead, in Romans 3, he's talking about God the Father. God the Father is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. But here, it's one Lord. So it's one God and Father, and there's the same Lord who is Lord over all. And so the same God justifies Jew and Gentile the same way. The same Lord justifies Jew and Gentile the same way. And when Paul writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, he's not talking about the Father, he's talking about the Son. When you call upon the name of the Lord... In the Old Testament, the Jews would find themselves in all kinds of trouble, all kinds of difficult situations. And those who were godly among the Jews, they would call on the name of the Lord. They would devote themselves to prayer. Hezekiah took the letter from Sennacherib and he laid it out before the altar of God and he called on God to save my city, save my nation from the destruction of the Assyrians. And God saved him when he called upon the name of the Lord when his trust was not in his foreign alliances, when his trust was not in the walls and the fortifications of Jerusalem, when his trust was in the Lord, he was saved. And God set up all of those illustrations 
of people calling on the name of the Lord and being saved throughout the scripture in order to point to the ultimate salvation of God. That you've got a problem and I've got a problem. We face eternal destruction. We face the fires that are unquenchable. When we call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, save me. Save me from my guilt. Save me from my sin. Save me from the dominion of evil over me and in my heart. And when you call upon the name of the Lord, you are saved. And you are continually calling upon the name of the Lord throughout your whole life knowing that there is no other Savior. And in your battle against sin and in the indwelling sin that is within you, you call upon the name of the Lord and you say, Lord, save me. And He saves you. We have been saved. We've been justified. We are being saved. We're being sanctified. And we will be saved. And it's all by faith. Not in a church. Not in a program. Not in any other person. But only in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is what it means to be an evangelical. The application is very straightforward and simple. Call people. Send out the call. You need to know the gospel. And in order to know the gospel, you've got to know what the gospel isn't because there's a lot of confusion. And you've got to be able to say, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. Believe this and be saved. Jesus is the gospel. Don't let any church get in the way of Jesus. Don't let any religion get in the way of Jesus. Tell people Jesus and let their trust be in him. And here we have his words. We want to obey all that he's taught us.